Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles. And this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the war zone as Ukraine takes ground in the south and the east. We analyse yesterday's leaked German intelligence report on the Ukrainian offensive. And I speak to The Telegraph's economic reporter, Melissa Lawford, on the warning signs appearing around the Russian economy. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 26th of July. One year and 152 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes, and economics reporter, Melissa Lawford. I started by asking Joe for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi there, folks. Yes, let's start with Ukrainian pushes in the south of the country. Uh, So Ukraine's armed forces have reportedly consolidated their position in or near to the village of Staromovsky. That's the Donetsk region village. Uh, so the village is south of Vilka Novosilka, and that's one of the kind of three main axes of attack. And we've, we've known that line, and we've spoken about that in recent weeks as the Vilka Novosilka line. Uh, so this information was shared by Ukraine's general staff, um, so it looks like Ukraine is pushing south through that line and towards the Azov Sea in the direction in there in the hope of essentially splitting the Russian land bridge that has been formed since the invasion. Then also from the counteroffensive, but another axis at the same time, Ukrainian forces were said to have repelled Russian attacks on positions northeast of Robotny in the Zaporizhia region. Uh, the village is on the second of the southern axes, the Orokiv and Tokbak axes. Taking a step back and looking at why that's important is Russia have routinely tried to deploy rapid counteroffenses to retake land captured by Ukraine in this counteroffensive. So the ability of uh, Ukraine being able to kind of fend off or repel these attacks is good news for them. To add to some Russian caveats from the TASS news agency, essentially now just a mouthpiece of the Kremlin, they reported that Ukrainian troops were forced to retreat from the area after Russian artillery units targeted them. Um, then let's go over to the, the third main axis, the Bakhmut axis. Um, so pro-Russian military bloggers have reported that Ukraine are having more successes on the southern tip of the city as part of the efforts to seemingly double envelop Russian troops uh, in the city, which have been there since since they captured it uh, well, a few months ago now. Um, 
Grey Zone, a Telegram channel with links to the Wagner Group, wrote, and I quote, in the South, the situation is developing and not in our direction. The units of the Russian armed forces were forced to retreat and leave a number of territories with strongholds and dominant heights, even though they were also reinforced by allied units. So this is essentially Ukraine trying to fight its way around the South and gain sort of good artillery positions on the high grounds around that surround Bakhmut, which is a somewhat of a, a basin city. So uh, there'll be pleased about that um but they're not particularly on any front at all but some sort of i guess we can call it good news when russian military bloggers are talking about apparent ukrainian successes it appears these russian sources on telegram have started to be a lot more bullish over ukraine's successes than some western governments and uh, i'd probably mention the us on that who have not criticized the ukrainian slow progress but have sort of talked it down a little bit so one account, Bulber of Thrones, has been speaking of a genocide of Russian artillery and says Ukraine will have successes if the West can continue supplying it with weapon systems because Moscow essentially cannot replace its uh, damaged or even just artillery systems that are suffering from barrel wear, just the wear and tear of fighting every day that quickly. And the blog also suggested that a recent crackdown on dissenters like Igor Gherkin, who was sort of one of the main protagonists in the Donbass over the years, kind of post-2014, have been made. So these are crackdown on dissenters. Arrests have been made. Gherkin is actually in prison, uh, allegedly. Um, are being made in preparation for bad news which could emerge in the autumn. So this is me kind of putting a, a read on, on what these Russians are saying. They are potentially hinting that Ukraine's advances will produce enough bad news and Russia is going to try and cover it up and stop people from speaking about it. So we don't know how far away Ukraine are breaking from the main lines of defence in the south or around Bakhmut. Uh, we don't know how many Russians are behind those lines, but it, it suggests if the Kremlin is trying to cover up any bad news, that it could be good news for Ukraine. Uh, but then I will add some sort of caveats to that. Russia is sort of making gains and putting pressure on Ukraine in the Luhansk region around the town of Kremina. Russia has been pushing for some months west for a forest area out of Kremina, and it appears to have started making gains. Whether they're meaningful or not, we don't know. So a battalion commander with Ukraine's 100th Territorial Defence Brigade told the New York Times they are constantly attacking, they are looking for a weak place, and then they will storm. Uh, so using battlefield mapping uh, websites, um, so not 100% accurate, I'll put that caveat in there, you can see Russia has um, pushed about 13 kilometres west out of Kremina. Um, the main advance in the past week or so has seen them move five kilometres west over a front line that stretches about nine kilometres wide. So they're actually making a bit of ground. Um, well, so most of the pressure appears to be coming out of that Kremina axis that I've spoken there. Russia have launched attacks across about in that direction in the westerly direction over a front line about 100 kilometers long sorry most reports from the ground suggest that russia is targeting barova uh, essentially looking to split ukraine's forces in the area and isolate the kharkiv region town of kupiansk some reporting suggests that russia has been able to make these gains in the last week or so as the rotation of Ukrainian troops happened. So some reports on social media suggest that 
experienced brigades have been taken out and replaced with more inexperienced brigades left in charge of a wide sort of front line to look after. And naturally, if you're not as experienced as your sort of your comrades, you're going to find it tough in what was when I was last out there. So it's May, June time, I was speaking to people in Kharkiv that were involved in that fighting and they and they said, look, it's not like Bakhmut, it's not like some of the frontline fighting um, that we're seeing now, um, but it is pretty brutal down there. It's very busy. So we, we know that Ukraine has sent reinforcements into reserves in to reinforce that that line, but Russia is about 20 kilometres away from Barova. Got a big task, uh, big task to do. And um, if you speak to sort of sources and Western officials looking in on that, they just say that this is the sort of the natural ebb and flow of the conflict as Ukraine takes territory elsewhere and puts puts its reserves and manpower into an area, Russia will be able to capitalise elsewhere. And that is naturally the same. It will work for Ukraine as well. And then an update on the various shelling attacks by Russian forces. So two civilians were killed by Russian shelling in an eastern region of Donetsk, according to the region's governor. Pavlo Krylenko also said two residents have been injured in just one day while seven houses were damaged, two civilians were killed, and three more were wounded after Russia fired on houses in the southern Kherson region, according to its governor, uh, Alexander Prokhodin wrote on Telegram, the Russian military aimed at the residential quarters of populated areas of the region, the territory of uh, one of the agricultural enterprises in Kakov district. Uh, Due to the Russian aggression, two people died, three more were injured. And then I will finish off with the military updates with just some announcements of donations uh, to Ukraine. So Ukraine's allies have committed sending $244 million, that's 189 million pounds of specialist equipment to demine the country. One of uh, Ukraine's uh, deputy prime ministers, Yulia Shrevedenko, uh, said our task is not only to demine the entire country or territory in order to save people's lives, but also to speed up this process. Um, then we can look at... The US have announced a new $400 million aid package that will include Black Hornet surveillance drones for the first time. Its security package, the latest of drones, have been approved by the US and will also send more air defense missiles and armored vehicles, in particular munitions for the Patriot system and the NASAM, the National Advanced Surface-to-Air Missile System, Stinger. Anti-aircraft systems are also being sent, as well as ammunition for the HIMARS and Striker armoured personnel carriers. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Joe Barnes, for that. Francis Dernley, can I come to you? Usually we start with a sort of roundup of some of the diplomatic news, but you've been looking into some reports from CNN and Politico, which uh, seem hugely important and uh, worthy of, of us stopping for a little bit and considering them. What have you been reading? Thanks, David. I'll come to the CNN story in a moment. But as you say, there have been two other significant reports that are being widely circulated this morning, which is why I focus on these first. One is written by journalists and one by intelligence officials. One was intended for the public at large and one for a private audience before it was leaked. The leaked one is a German intelligence assessment on the counteroffensive. It's a major piece which warrants its own segment. So I will turn to that later. The other is a recent investigation by Politico, which is an extension of their earlier work into China's military support of Russia, which we reported on several months ago. 
Politico are now arguing that China secretly sends enough gear to Russia to equip an army. So according to customs records obtained by Politico, Russian buyers have declared orders for hundreds of thousands of bulletproof vests and helmets made by Shanghai H. Win. The items listed in the documents match those in the company's online catalogue, they say. The protective gear would be sufficient to equip many of the men mobilised by Russia since the invasion. Then there are drones that can be used to direct artillery fire or drop grenades and thermal optical sights to target the enemy at night. Russia has imported more than $100 million worth of drones from China so far this year, 30 times more than Ukraine. And Chinese export of ceramics, which is, of course, a key component in body armour, increased by 69 to Russia to more than $225 million, while dropping, I think this is very significant, by 61% to Ukraine to a mere $5 million. And again, this is coming off the back of Chinese and Ukrainians' custom data. Now, of course, there are reasons to think why for the, there may be that drop in the Ukrainian purchasing from China, maybe due to security concerns, and maybe because they're receiving more from their Western allies. But nonetheless, it does seem to suggest there's something political going on here, as well as it just being that factor. So Politico say, and I'm quoting here, evidence of this kind shows that China, despite Beijing's calls for peace, is pushing right up to a red line in delivering enough non-lethal but militarily useful equipment to Russia to have a material impact on Putin's 17-month-old war on Ukraine. The ambiguity surrounding the dual-use status of this equipment, coupled with the fact that a significant portion of it is manufactured in China, seems, at least for now, to have placed the possibility of the West taking meaningful action beyond reach. The piece does, however, offer some reflections on what might be done to enforce sanctions and stop this. It's, of course, an ongoing subject of conversation. Many this morning are also commentating on international failures to curb Iran's providing of drones to Russia that, of course, are being used in some of the heinous civilian attacks that we've discussed recently. This is the CNN report. So they've published a piece citing U.S. intelligence officials who have warned Russia is building a drone manufacturing facility in the country with Iran's help. Analysts from the Defense Intelligence Agency told a small group of reporters that the drone manufacturing facility now under construction is expected to provide Russia with a new drone stockpile that is orders of magnitude larger. That's a quote from them that then would have been possible to procure from Iran. When the facility is completed, likely by early next year, the new drones could have a significant impact on the conflict, according to said analysts. Now, speaking of Russia's allies, it is worth adding that Sergei Shoigu has travelled to Pyongyang today, heading a delegation to mark the 70th anniversary of the Korean War and the struggle against the United States and its allies. He has said that Russia plans to work more closely with North Korea on defence. I am convinced that today's talks will contribute to strengthening cooperation between our defence departments. That's what he said. Worth adding, of course, there has already been extensive speculation that Russia is assisting both North Korea and Iran on their nuclear programmes in exchange for their support during this war. 
In other major news, the fallout from Russia pulling out of the grain deal continues. Russia has laid more mines in the Black Sea, which could end up attacking civilian shipping. That's coming from the UK's ambassador to the UN. Barbara Woodward has said Britain has information indicating the Russian military may expand their targeting of Ukrainian grain facilities further to include attacks against civilian shipping in the Black Sea. She says our information indicates that Russia has laid additional mines. We are we agree with the US assessment that this is a coordinated effort to justify and lay blame on Ukraine for any attacks against civilian ships in the Black Sea. And indeed, the military Ministry of Defence goes even further. They say that Russia could be preparing to enforce a blockade on Ukraine using its Black Sea fleet. In an intelligence update, it's written on Twitter, the Mon Corvette Sergei Kotov has deployed to the southern Black Sea, patrolling the shipping lane between the Bosphorus and Odessa. There is a realistic possibility that it will form part of a task group to intercept commercial vessels Russia believes are heading to Ukraine. There is now the potential for the intensity and scope of violence in the area to increase. I should add that yesterday Ukraine was said to have launched an airstrike on that ship, the Sergei Kotov, but those drones were apparently shot down before they could cause any damage. That's come from Russia, but has not been independently verified. Unsurprisingly, the Telegraph understands that Ukraine will seek security for its ports and grain exports at the first joint council with NATO later today. President Zelensky said the consultations are specifically about security in the Black Sea, our ports and our grain exports. Now is the time, he says, when it is important to reap the harvest of determination, security determination, so that no one will have to end up as a harvester of chaos later on. I should, and I also think it's very revealing that Ukraine's top diplomat has visited Liberia amid what is clearly a concerted push by Kyiv to challenge Russian influence in Africa. Africa, of course, being hugely influenced by what is going on with the grain deal. Evidently, Western leaders and diplomats are desperately trying to find a solution to this, or at least find something they can offer as a threat. Uh, that puts pressure on Russia before the important meeting between Putin and Erdogan later this week. Something, of course, that we'll be covering extensively. Thank you very much for all of that, Francis. And before we come back to Francis to introduce and talk about this leaked Bundeswehr report that's popped up in the German press, Joe, would you like to add anything to any of that? I know you've been speaking to some Western officials recently. What, what What's the mood music that you're hearing? So look, yeah, they're they're concerned to sort of give you a brief rundown. There, there have been um, US warnings of false flag attacks potentially in the area. The particular Western officials we were speaking to were saying, look, we don't, that's for the Americans to say, but look, if you look at the levels of violence in the Black Sea and the statements in the Russia, there is definitely a change of intent from the Russians there. They've seen as, as was noted in the UK's defence intelligence briefing this morning, there's preparations seemingly underway for uh, Russian ships to be performing intercepts in the Black Sea shipping lane. You've got to remember as well in, in Romania, there have been concerns. Uh, the strike against a port on the Ukrainian bank of the Danube is fairly risque, some might say. And we've not really seen the level of risk demonstrated by the Russians that close to the NATO border before. I think we can expect statements. So the NATO-Ukraine Council, the body that basically officiates 
Ukraine's involvement with NATO as a non-member is meeting today and there will be statements on that because that was convened to discuss the Black Sea issue. Then we look at like the Black Sea fleet, Russia's naval presence there. It's still relatively large. They've got a number of vessels and each kind of step when Russia agitates about the extension of the Black Sea grain deal, the Western officials have noticed a degree of preparation around basically make readying potential boarding vessels, whether they be to seize vessels, to board them, to check the contents of them. But then you can just look at open source tracking on this. And there, 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 is, there is lots of shipping uh, from the Bosphorus to the Danube. But then if you look north into the Ukrainian waters, they're basically empty. But you also see ships backing up from the Danube now because the Russian activity there naturally is, is threatening. It's causing tensions in the area. So it's going to be something that the West, NATO, are really going to be looking at closely because that is, as I mentioned, it's the, it's the closest sort of real acts of violence towards the NATO border that we've seen to date. So it's one to really look out for. Thanks, Joe. Let's go on to talk about this uh, German intelligence assessment on Ukrainian counteroffensive then. This came out yesterday. It was leaked to Germany's Bild newspaper. Francis, you've been reading some of the reports surrounding it. What does it say? Thanks. Yes, well, it's hard to do justice to it in full. It is extensive. And as I say, it is a German intelligence assessment. So it's not intended for lowly plebs like us to be reading it. We are fortunate to have it. Although I should say that from the Ukrainian perspective, I think it is unfortunate reading given the timing, which I'll come to in a moment. Its central thesis, as it were, is that Ukraine's counteroffensive is failing to make progress because its army is not fully implementing the training it's received from the West. So it says that Kyiv is spreading its troops out too thinly across the 1,000 kilometre front line and attacking in units composed of too few soldiers. Furthermore, it says Ukrainian soldiers trained by the West are showing great learning success, but are let down by commanders who have not been through the boot camps. It states that the Ukrainian military favours promoting soldiers with combat experience over those who have received NATO standard instructions. That commanders can therefore show the considerable deficiencies in leadership, which lead to wrong and dangerous decisions. That's how the military document puts it. Now, as you say, this has come from the Bundeswehr, so they do know what they're talking about. And Ukraine is, for them, sacrificing its advantage in manpower by attacking in units of between 10 and 30 men, insufficient to break through Russian lines. It adds that the small unit sizes increase the risk of friendly fire and fail to group together enough Western-trained soldiers to be operationally effective. It says that the Western trained soldiers understood the operational principles and fire movement, but when they returned to Ukraine would often be commanded by officers who used different military tactics. And apparently German military leaders are expressing frustration at experienced fighters being promoted over Western trained troops, as I say. The Ukrainian armed forces have not responded to the report, but senior British military figures criticise the leak, first of all, understandably, and its conclusions, saying that it doesn't help anyone to unduly criticise Ukraine. But they go further. A senior defence source has told The Telegraph, there have obviously been instances where the Ukrainians have done things differently. But I would argue that they have tried to implement their Western training beyond what might be deemed tolerable given certain tactical situations. 
They certainly have plenty of problems, but I don't think this German accusation is one of them. The idea that they are abusing the formations we have trained them in just doesn't ring true to me. So I say that's a quote from the senior defence source we've spoken to. Another, Lord Dannett, former head of the British Army, has said, I've seen criticism that the West has not delivered all anti-mine equipment as we promised. So we need to be patient with Ukraine and encourage and support them to do their best. Some, however, are even harsher in their criticism of this report. So Sergei Semleny, founder of the Berlin-based European Resilience Initiative Centre think tank has dismissed the report as typical German arrogance. He says the belief of the Bundeswehr is that the German trained soldiers are so much better than everyone that they can be better officers than experienced Ukrainian soldiers. However, a German certificate does not make you a better soldier. So I think the broader point here is less about the detail than this report's contribution to the narrative, although I do think, of course, some of this detail, if it is accurate, is very important to understand. And no doubt it is currently being uh, assessed in detail by those in the know. But as I say, this narrative matters. And despite the fact that Ukraine has continued to make sizable reclaims of its territory. Evidently, there is a feeling in Western capitals that the counteroffensive is not going according to plan. And this is feeding into that. And so that's why I mentioned the timing being particularly unfortunate. But as I said yesterday, it's important to remember that Ukraine has proven itself highly adaptive. And I expect that there have been shifts in strategy in many weeks as a consequence of any errors articulated in this report. As I spoke about earlier in the week, there's often a great delay between these kind of assessments and the realities that they describe. And that includes our own reporting too, inevitably. And so it's just worth remembering that there may already be quite substantial changes that have been implemented as a consequence of some of these errors, if indeed they can be articulated as such. The first step, of course, in all of these things is a recognition rather than a denial. And that is something that Russia was incapable of doing for almost a year of this war, whereas Ukraine has been very open, typically, of some of the mistakes it has made. Zelensky has said that the counteroffensive is not going according to plan in some areas. And uh, I think, again, this is a symbolic difference between the two sides. And that's something that when we uh, have interviewed numerous uh, military strategists on this podcast, have been keen to point out that when you look at the factors that are integral for a side to succeed militarily, Ukraine tends to have more of those core principles in play than Russia does. And adaptability and a recognition of mistakes and flexibility are all paramount for learning and then being successful. So I suppose I caveat a lot of this negativity at the moment, and I discussed some of that yesterday, with those important longer term zoomed out understandings that contribute to our understanding of what is, of course, a very important moment in this war. Thanks so much, Francis, for giving us the rundown there. Joe, what do you make of this report and what do your sources make of it? Yeah, so I don't want to come across sort of all armchair general. I'll leave that to other people, but it is one of those moments where you you read these leaks and you're just like really scratching your head and slightly puzzled. So first I will recite some opinions from the Western official brief that I was just, just in and the official said, look, it's not fair to accuse Ukraine of laying waste or putting waste to its Western training. 
Uh, Ukraine is using the equipment as it sees best. And it's and, and I think the, the key point is, is how, how easy it's, is it to actually comment when you're thousands of miles from the front lines, sitting in a, a cosy office block, um, not under sort of heavy artillery shelling, not risking your life for your country. So um, yeah, that's sort of that opinion. Look, we've got to remember that these Ukrainian soldiers who have undergone this combined arms training, essentially NATO standard training of using artillery, vehicles, tanks, uh, air power, and infantry movement, all in one sort of fell swoop to do it properly, the NATO style of doing war, essentially. Um, They've received weeks of training. I'm going to say if any soldiers are listening today, they probably underwent months of training before they were getting it right on every occasion. Um, You look at even... um, Surely American soldiers or British soldiers running for exercises, trying to breach the the style of Russian defences in place. Now, they would struggle, is, I think, (laughs) quite a frank assessment of that. Ukrainian guys and and girls have done it in quickfire time, and they're often moved from the front line to undergo training and then straight back to fighting. And then I think the other point we can really make is... Of course it's going slow, because Ukraine cannot carry out the full NATO style of combined arms when it doesn't have air superiority. So traditionally, NATO militaries would be able to soften up their targets with a multitude of air-launched weapons, whether it be from helicopters or fighter jets. Ukraine doesn't have that luxury. It cannot operate fighter jets or helicopters that close to the front line without putting the undue risk because of various Russian systems Then I think the other point to make is also Ukraine doesn't have, as I was speaking the other day when I was giving kind of my rundown of the counteroffensive, it doesn't have the necessary combat engineering vehicles, mine clearing vehicles to wade through these minefields. So yeah, I'm sure if the Germans want them to go quicker, they could just go into minefields with their Leopard 2 tanks or Marder fighting vehicles and just see them blown up. Uh, But the Ukraine doesn't want that and I'm sure the Germans don't want that either. So... I can assure some of the Ukrainian caution is probably justified. But yeah, going back to that point of the slow advance through minefields, Ukraine, because of the lack of engineering vehicles, is essentially having to dismount and wade through these minefields, clearing them by hand. So that's going to be slow. Um, And also, I think it's fair to say the way that Ukraine is going into smaller sections because... The NATO style of combined arms fighting would give you a lot wider front, but because it doesn't, Ukraine doesn't have the full luxury of being able to carry out manoeuvres like that, it has to narrow down and go into smaller funnels of smaller units of, say, 20, 30 men. And then I could actually think of, should we, um, this is something I've been pondering a lot of the time. I spent my time in, some of my time in Ukraine last time with the guys at TDI who, who listen to the podcast and Dan Ridley, who's been on the podcast, and they, they're training people in Ukraine. They're training Ukrainians on these style NATO tactics inside Ukraine. So we have to look at, has the Western training been effective? Obviously, it's going to give these soldiers a great deal of confidence and skill set, and that's, that's great news for, for the soldiers. But when you're in Germany, Britain, Poland, or wherever you're training how much news and intelligence is feeding back from the front line to the training? How are they adapting? We don't know. But 
that you could say training inside Ukraine, while dangerous, is actually giving you more real-time intelligence because you are able to essentially feed back that information from the front line as soldiers return. They can ask questions and say, look, last week we were doing this, we were faced with this problem, how do we overcome it? You can adapt training. So look, it's all well and good the Germans are probably a bit tetchy about the slow-moving rate of the counteroffensive. They've got their own reasons for that, but I'm, I'm sure it's not entirely justified or helpful criticism uh, for my end. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Francis and Joe, for all of that. Final thoughts. Francis, would you like to begin? Thanks, David. Well, I zoomed in yesterday on this issue around corruption in Ukraine and specifically Ukraine's fight against it. And since the stories I discussed then, Zelensky has published a piece on Telegram railing against corruption and criticising officials who are planning their holidays instead of fighting a war. I will quote directly from it. No one will forgive MPs, judges, military commissars or any other officials for putting themselves in opposition to the state. For some, it's about islands and resorts during the war. For others, it's about lining one's pockets in the military enlistment offers. For others, it's about bribes in the courts. For any public official, this is a betrayal of state principles, a betrayal of the interests of society. I want all MPs and officials to hear me now. You must work. In Ukraine and for the sake of the Ukrainian people, I am grateful to those MPs who are truly working for the interests of the state and those who think about spending more time abroad and look for profitable trips so they can combine them with business, friends or beaches. There will not be any of you. I think there he is alluding to a Ukrainian MP who is under investigation by the security services after being accused of taking a holiday in the Maldives under the guise of a business trip. But this comes obviously off the back of a broader pattern of quite in-depth investigations and arrests of corruption in Ukraine. And I won't go over old ground that I did yesterday, just to say, though, that this is clearly a concerted effort on the part of the country to stamp this out as part of its fight against Russia. Just changing the subject slightly, following our extensive reporting into Ukraine's kidnapped children, I just wanted to raise awareness that the Juvenile Prevention Department of the National Police of Ukraine have launched a free mobile application called Reunite Ukraine in collaboration with a US nonprofit, Find My Parent. It seeks to reunite separated Ukrainian families using AI technology. It's available in English, Ukrainian and Russian, and it's a free download on iOS and Android devices. So if you're listening and are involved in research on this topic or are trying to find loved ones or are helping others in trying to reunite them, I would recommend that people seek it out. I'm away now for a few days and I'll be reading some more into the legal processes for bringing the perpetrators of such crimes to justice and also into this subject of Russia's sanctions loopholes. There's a lot of interesting work that are being done in those areas at the moment. And they seem to me particularly important not to be forgotten with so much of the attention, for obvious reasons, on the counteroffensive, because they are just as important in their own way. But as I say, I look forward to sharing more on that in due course. Thank you very much, Francis Sternley. Uh, Joe Barnes. I just want to bring together two things I've spoken about today. One being the sort of the German or Western accusations that 
the counteroffensive is slow. And one about the, the, the Russians being worried about that. You kind of draw this distinction between the two and it's, it's almost as if the West, uh, whether it be the UK, the US, Germany, France, whoever, has put on sort of undue pressure and wants rapid returns for what is seen as donations worth of tens of billions of dollars, when it, in reality, is not going to be like that. So I, I just think we have to take a step back and give Ukraine the time and put confidence in on, on the guys on the ground using this equipment rather than rushing straight to conclusions that things are too slow or hampered or just not doing very well, because it's all too easy to say that <laughs> when we're sitting thousands of miles away, like our Western official said. So I'll stop there for today and thank you. Thanks, Francis and Joe. Yesterday, I caught up with The Telegraph's Melissa Lawford. Melissa's our economics reporter. She's been looking into the state of the Russian economy as oil profits plunge and the workforce flees conscription. Here's our conversation. Melissa, you write that although Russia has seemed to be weathering the economic storm that followed its invasion of Ukraine, its full-scale invasion, that situation is now changing. What's happening and what specifically has changed over the last few months? Yeah, well, I mean... If we look at the performance of the Russian economy last year, actually the numbers really don't paint the picture that we would want them to do. Putin was remarkably well prepared for the war. I mean, he he planned it and he built up these enormous cash reserves, tens and tens of billions of dollars. And then the energy crisis came along and that put a firecracker under Russia's export revenues. Oil and gas revenues surged by 144% year on year in Russia last year. That, that was to a total of $349 billion. Then, you know, the financial sanctions came in and all of this, but a lot of Russian brands moved in to replace the Western brands that had been squeezed out. The ruble did fall, but then it recovered. And, you know, broadly, by the end of 2022, Russia's economy just wasn't looking that bad. Now, we're in July, it, it is a very different picture. Those cash reserves have been spent. You know, I, I think the Kremlin was running a budget surplus of about 28 billion dollars in the early months of the war. In June this year, that national account was in a deficit of 1.4 billion. Their oil revenues have plunged. They've nearly halved year on year. Obviously that's still still up a fair amount. You know, last year was was a bumpy year, but I think we're down by about a, a fifth compared to the start of the war. And you know that there is this toll when that's starting to come through in the weaker currency, which we can see the rubles lost about thirty nine percent of its value against the dollar so far this year, and and forty seven percent against the euro. So we are now starting to see these signs of weakness, and the war is taking a toll. One simple point you make in your article is that inflation is starting to gather pace in Russia. How is this happening and what does this mean? Well, as the value of Russia's exports 
fall. We're seeing the currency fall. But at the same time, imports have recovered to normal levels. Uh, That's all of the goods that Russia is bringing in now through places like Kazakhstan and Armenia. And all of those imports are getting much more expensive because their currency is weaker. And then also combined with with the cost of the war, all, all of those things are are going to and are already driving up inflation. So how we saw Russia's official measure of inflation climb to 3.3% in June, that was up from about 2.5% in the previous month. So, you know, we're all quite familiar with how inflation numbers work these days. That, that That's a pretty significant jump. And the Kiev School of Economics thinks that could approach 8% by the end of the year, which would be a pretty rapid rise in inflation. And and, and the upshot of that is it's, it's going to hurt people. Things are going to be more expensive for everyone. We, we all know what that feels like. But Russia is a poorer country than, than we are. You know, it's, it's going to hurt more key to this entire story and you've mentioned it a few times already and actually on this podcast over the past year and a half it's something when we've talked about the the sort of economic war and Russia's resilience economic resilience the the energy market is is the almost the cornerstone of of, of all of this in in your view how is this changed over the past sort of year six months and how and how is that going to impact the Russian economy Yes, you, the, all of this really, the, the turning point has been the energy market and the oil and gas market specifically for Russia. And, and there, there's two components to this. They're working in tandem together. The, the first thing is sanctions. So we had the bulk of the fanfare of sanctions was, uh, you know, the, the, the beginning of the war when we had the flurry of financial sanctions. But, but the most significant thing that the West has done didn't happen until December 2022. And that, that was the, the embargo on Russian crude oil that came in in December. And, the, and then we had the embargo on oil products that came in in February. And, and what the West has done there is other countries can, can buy Russian oil, but they can only do so if they purchase it within a price cap if they want to use our insurance market, which is most of the ships that they they would use. And so suddenly at the turn of the year, actually uh, there was a very, very big material change in the sanctions on Russian oil, which hadn't existed throughout almost all of 2022. And just as, as that hit, the world had adjusted or was starting to get better at adjusting to the energy crisis, you know, we have adjusted where we buy our energy from and and very high prices during the crisis has also reduced demand. Now, OPEC and uh, the, the Saudi Arabia-led coalition uh, uh, and its allies, namely Russia, have, have been trying to push prices up in the wake of that falling demand and then it hits the price cap. So those two things together have have really been a constraint on how much money Russia is going to get from oil. You know, the, the oil price peaked, I think, at about $120 last summer. Now, now the price of crude is at about $80. And those things together are, are bringing this squeeze on the amount of income that Russia can get from oil and gas. And, and they make up about half of its exports. 
pulling all of those thoughts together, in your view, what's the sort of medium and long-term prospectus for the Russian economy? Uh, well, although we are at a turning point where things are now starting to get significantly worse, and, and I believe, you know, from, from the economists I've been speaking to, that, that that trajectory is going to get worse for Russia. You know, but for all of that kind of darkening of the economic clouds, I, I haven't spoken to anybody who thinks that we are yet at a point where, or getting close to a point where, where that economic squeeze will trigger any kind of regime change. You know, in, inflation's going to rise, the pain is going to increase, the people carrying the burden of that pain are going to be ordinary Russians, but everybody is talking about a slow burn here. Uh, you know, the government is going to be making these decisions between guns versus butter, but it has the option to be making those decisions. One thing, though, I, you know, which which I think is going to be the thing to watch, we, we've talked about inflation and how that is on the rise. There's a big difference between talking about 8% inflation and talking about hyperinflation, you know, which I, I think is sort of officially categorized as price increases of about 50% per month. But that is now becoming a sort of potential future possibility. I, I was talking to an economist this morning from Chatham House and he was saying, you know, that is becoming feasible, maybe on a kind of three-year horizon, something like that. And, and that would be a, a regime change scenario. You know, people would not be able to tolerate that. People would not be able to live, certainly not in the way that they're used to. So so the, the ball is is rolling on these, these things now, but just nothing is going to move fast. And, and that, you know, there is still more that the West needs to try and do with sanctions because although we're going in... I don't know if it feels difficult to call it the right direction. Russia is heading in a painful direction now. But that's that's not it's not at a point where it's going to be enough to trigger a revolt or, or overturn Putin. So just to try to sum up your view back at you, just to make sure I've understood it right. At the beginning of the war, Putin was very well prepared for the economic financial sanctions that would come Russia's way. They survived the sort of initial assault of Western sanctions. The uptick in the energy market uh, really boosted the coffers of the Kremlin over the past year. In December, January, the West sort of struck back with, as you described, those really punishing sanctions on Russian um, oil. And now we're in a position where it's the sort of initial defensive moves laid out by the Kremlin or made by the Kremlin ha have sort of run out of steam. Like there's not, they can't do anything more there. And the implications of everything else that's going on, the continued sanctions, the fall in the energy market is starting to, as you said, the sort of storm clouds are gathering and the next six months a year looks looks like it's going to get worse, but not so much worse that that could trigger any sort of, necessarily trigger any political revolt. But in the future, as you said, one economist at Chatham House, something like hyperinflation is, is now a possibility, whereas previously that, that wasn't really. Is that roughly, have I got that roughly yeah, right? Is yeah. there anything to add to that? Or? I don't know that that's, that's absolutely what I think the, the lay of the land is. I mean, the, the, the other thing to add is, you know, and everyone brings this up all the time, but this war is going on for longer than Russia thought it would, than Putin thought it would. And, and so, well, you also have these macroeconomic forces sort of swirling at the same time. That spend on the war machine is continuing 
and the loss of men is continuing and the loss of workers is continuing. You know, estimates of how many people have left the country is sort of ranges between half a million and a million. Uh, and at the same time, you know, what, one thing I'm personally very interested in watching, you know, the, Russia has this very tight employment market at the moment because so many people have left. It's got very, very low unemployment. But there is this metric that the, the German Council on Foreign Relations has on hidden unemployment, which is sort of including things like unpaid leave and partial employment. The measure of that is at a record high. And there, there are these sort of undercurrents of separate pain which are, are tied to the, to the realities of the war and, and they are moving alongside these economic forces and, and the two together becomes quite a powerful storm. The only other thing I'd like to add is that I think there is a big question mark over the data that is coming out of Russia and, you know, what we can rely on and what we can look at as uh, hard facts or what is part of the propaganda machine. Writing this story, it was a big conversation with a lot of the economists I, I was talking to. There are a few things that are pretty hardcore, undeniable. The, the currency is is one of them. The government does have this capacity to, to intervene and, and strengthen and bolster the currency and the fact that they're not doing that now. They're letting the ruble fall. People feel is representative of they have to let it fall so that they can keep their exports moving. That, that that's a bellwether, I think. So, so they've taken a punch by doing that because they have to. There's no other. There's no lever they can pull. Is that right? Well, they they need to keep the exports flowing, so uh, they will will take that hit, uh, acknowledge the the weakness, and and yeah, because because they need to, you know. It's getting a bit more into the minutiae, but um, there are some economists at the European Central Bank who've devised an alternative tracker for Russian economic activity, which I think is is, is one of the, the very interesting pieces of work being done at the moment. And they kind of combine, I think it's 15 lead indicators for the economy and that has shown a kind of consistent underperformance compared to the official measures through the course of the war. It doesn't show something catastrophic that the, mm. the government isn't reporting, but but there are signs that, that the official data that we have on this is, is not painting the full picture. And uh, there's some very interesting economic research going on in those fields. Melissa Lawford, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. 
and you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Louisa Wells, and the executive producers were David Knowles and Louisa Wells.